What freaks people out about it is, is it seems to have some sort of human quality, either in the way it stares in a challenging way, the way it moves and walks, the way it seems interested in humans. Some have even reported feeling that it's trying to communicate with them. You know, so there's something really different about it than, than just a normal animal. Ladies and gentlemen, Bidon of America! And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of BOA Audio Season 5. No serious in-house notes this week, but I do want to throw a couple of plugs in for next week's offerings, especially for the folks who might miss the plugs at the end of the show. Next week here on BOA Audio Season 5, we welcome back acclaimed UFO historian Richard Dolan for a lengthy conversation on his book, UFOs and the National Security State, Volume 2. It's a must-hear for any serious student of ufology. That's next week on BOA Audio Season 5. And if that was not enough on our sister program, The Lost Cast, We are welcoming back to the BOA Audio franchise one of the most popular guests ever in the history of this program. The immortal Bruce Rocks joins us to talk about the world of Lost. So there you go, across the board next week, two massive guests, Bruce Rocks on the Lost cast, and then Richard Dolan on BOA Audio Season 5. It is going to be a star-studded week. All right, now that we've taken care of those plugs here, let's get down to business and talk about this week's edition of BOA Audio. Our guest is acclaimed cryptozoologist Linda Godfrey, and she joins us here for a discussion about the bipedal canine cryptid phenomenon. And the bipedal canine cryptid also goes by a number of different names, the dog man, the man wolf, for better or for worse, the werewolf. I've kind of settled in on bipedal canine cryptid, or the shorthand version BCC, so bear with me as I will kind of try and stick to that name. Here in this conversation with Linda, we're going to cover the phenomenon from a number of different angles. First, we'll tackle the recent Monster Quest episode, which was devoted to the Michigan Dogman and the now infamous Gable film, which purported to show a bipedal canine cryptid. Linda followed this story from the very beginning all the way to the end and knew the guy who was pushing this video as the real thing, the guy that pretty much was behind the hoax. She's going to share her take on the whole thing and provide a wealth of details as to how this whole sordid affair unfolded. From there, we're going to dive headlong into Linda's research into the bipedal canine cryptids, We'll find out how she first began investigating the phenomenon, the response of the cryptozoological community to her research, the typical descriptions of bipedal canine cryptids, and how they differ from Bigfoot, bears, and the Hollywood versions of werewolves. 
Uh, then we'll explore the connections between the bipedal canine cryptid and bodies of water, as well as Native American burial mounds. We'll look at the difficulties of trying to prove the BCC's existence. We'll examine the potential for some kind of interdimensional aspect to the creature. And we'll get into a whole bunch of other side roads involved here with the bipedal canine cryptid. I know you may be rolling your eyes right now saying bipedal canine cryptids. This is crazy. I don't believe it. But trust me, folks, I sat down and read Hunting the American Werewolf and came out of it with a really open mind to the possible reality of this creature. There is something going on in Wisconsin and throughout America with regards to the bipedal canine cryptid, and it's time we explore it here on BOA Audio with the researcher who put this beast on the esoteric map, Linda Godfrey. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Linda Godfrey, allow me to provide you with a little background on her. Linda Godfrey is one of the most respected authorities on anomalous animals and paranormal phenomena in Wisconsin. As a journalist, she was the first to break the story of a terrifying werewolf-like monstrosity lurking in the shadow-shrouded forests surrounding Elkhorn, Wisconsin's Bray Road. She has continued to pursue her interests in the unknown and has gone on to investigate an array of unusual animals allegedly lurking in her home state. She's the author of The Beast of Bray Road and Hunting the American Werewolf, the two books which explore the bipedal canine cryptid phenomenon, and she's the co-author of Weird Wisconsin and Weird Michigan. Her website is www.beastofbrayroad.com. All one word, let me spell that one out for you. Beast of Bray, B-R-A-Y, road.com. Beastofbrayroad.com. Check it out. And now, without any further ado... Let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on March 26, 2010. Linda Godfrey talking about bipedal canine cryptids on BOA Audio Season 5. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Been All of America Audio. Very excited about this week's edition of the program. I have been knee deep in research here for this week's guest. She's the author of a number of books, but most notably, I guess you could say, is The Beast of Bray Road, and the sequel to that, Hunting the American Werewolf, which is what I read yesterday. And she was recently featured uh, this past week, although by the time you hear this, it'll be about three weeks ago, on Monster Quest. So she's a TV star as well. So I'm very excited to get the chance to talk to her about her groundbreaking and really thought-provoking research, because you just don't hear much about this in the mainstream sort of esoteric circles. It's sort of a little bit on the periphery, but it seems to be getting bigger and bigger and bigger every year, and that is the American werewolf, the man-wolf, not necessarily the old-school Benicio del Toro werewolf, but really some kind of weird, uh, almost Bigfoot-esque creature. Linda Godfrey, thank you for coming on the show. Linda, it's great to have you on the program. You're welcome, and thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, because I'm a huge fan of Bigfoot, I guess you could say, and this thing's sort of like Bigfoot's strange cousin or something, so I've always kind of found this to be interesting, and and as I said, it's sort of like on the periphery of of cryptozoology in a way, and I kind of want to talk to you about that in a little bit uh, as we sure. get going on this, but I suppose we should start out, you know, with the bio, the background, who is Linda Godfrey, how'd you get mixed up in this American werewolf, man-wolf thing, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about what your preferred nomenclature is for this creature? Because I know there's a lot of, you know, pop cultural baggage attached to the term werewolf. 
Very much so. That's a great point, and I'm glad you brought that up. Um, as for me, I sometimes call myself the accidental werewolf researcher <laughs> because this totally came about because back in the early 90s, I was working as an artist, cartoonist, and reporter for the county newspaper down here in Walworth County in southeastern Wisconsin. And wouldn't you know, it was in my own hometown of Elkhorn, I was tipped off by somebody that people were seeing something that they were describing, for lack of a better word, as a werewolf because it looked like a dog or a wolf walking or running on its hind legs and doing things that you just didn't expect dogs or wolves to do. And uh, actually, nobody else wanted to touch the story, <laughs> and, but I was kind of intrigued by it. And I, and I said, well, I'll, I'll look into this. And when I started looking around... Um, you know, I realized that there was more than one person. They seemed to be kind of a wide variety of people. You know, it didn't seem like teenage pranksters. And then I discovered what made it a newspaper story and probably the reason that it ever was written up and, and ended up being what it is today is that I found out that our county animal control officer, that is a county official, had been logging in reports from these people who were calling him and saying, I saw this thing. I don't know what it was, but if there was such a thing as a werewolf, this is what it would be. And he had their names and phone numbers, and he actually had them in a manila file folder that he showed me that was labeled werewolf. Now, when you've got a county official with a manila file folder labeled werewolf in which he's compiling records from citizens, yeah. you know, that's that's a news story. Absolutely, for sure. Yeah, and so... Um, and he shared those names with me, and I went and interviewed a bunch of them. And much to my surprise, I didn't think they were crazy. You know, and I was really skeptical at first because, you know, it just sounds so ludicrous. But there was a high school girl. There was a group of grade school kids who were chased by one. There was a young single mother. There were um, elderly people, farmers. You know, it was such a wide spectrum. And some of them had really good close-up looks and were convinced that it, you know, wasn't somebody in a suit. And it would have had to have been an extremely sophisticated suit for what all those people saw. And they all wanted to tell their stories. And within, much to my surprise, within about two weeks, we had um, people from all, it went national. And we had Inside Edition out here doing a story. You know, the TV show started right away and have never stopped. And... Once it went national, the thing that happened was people started writing me and saying, I saw this thing too, or my cousin Ferdy saw this thing in the cornfield, you should talk to him, that kind of thing. Yeah. So not only did I become the media lightning rod for anything related to werewolves, but because my name was on that story, people were coming to me um, as sort of their, their uh, reporter confessor. <laughs> with with their own stories, you know, and I felt that I was being entrusted with something and that I the least I could do was keep track of it. You know, I didn't have any intention in the beginning of writing a book or following it for the rest of my life. I just thought, well, this is something I should keep track of and, and uh, you know, who knows, maybe it, I was seeing it as perhaps a new branch of, of modern folklore that I was... Uh, privilege to track and, and write down. Interesting. Okay, yeah. So you weren't really at first thinking that this was some kind of cryptozoological beast, but maybe more of some I had never of... heard of cryptozoology. Okay. 
and I was I, I was always interested in strange things. I mean, I I always liked my dad was a, a science fiction reader, and I grew up with magazines with little green aliens on them, you know. So I was always kind of into UFOs a little bit, and and uh, you know, like to read about the fairy world and and things like that. But uh, the idea of werewolves had never really um, done anything for me. You know, I never had really thought much about them. So it it was just sort of something that I stumbled into and felt that I should keep tabs on and, and learned as I went along. Okay, so now what about the, uh, like I said, the nomenclature? What do you like to use? Because I don't want to offend you by saying werewolf over and over again. So. No, and, that doesn't, <laughs> and it doesn't offend me um, because it is actually, I, and I've, I've said this in a couple of my books, I, I sometimes use the term myself as a useful shorthand because it brings to mind really the approximate picture of what people see, which is, something vaguely man-sized, sort of man-shaped in the body because it's walking on, on two legs, although it has canine legs, not, not human feet, and upright, you know, and behaves strangely. So in that way, and, and also my publishers like the term much better because yeah. it's, it's much more sensational. And again, it gives that instant mind picture and it's got all the connotations that sell books. So it does end up in some of my work, but um, right from the get-go, you know, I wasn't feeling like this was what you would call a traditional werewolf, and that's why I coined the term Beast of Bray Road, because, you know, a beast, um, if you define that, it could, could really mean anything from a kitten to a dragon. Yeah. You know, it leaves it wide open. And plus it had that nice alliteration with Bray Road. So, you know, Beast, I thought, was a good term because it just left it wide open, not knowing what it is. Um, and then I thought and, I thought and thought and thought about this over the years, and, um, it seemed to me Manwolf was a good, one of the best alternatives that I could come up with because it doesn't have that same Hollywood baggage that the term werewolf has. Yeah. And I really felt that since we were dealing with something different that the name should be a little different. But yet it denotes that what freaks people out about it is, is it seems to have some sort of human quality either and the way it stares in a challenging way, the way it moves and walks, the way it seems interested in humans. Some have even reported feeling that it's trying to communicate with them. You know, so there's something really different about it than, than just a normal animal. And, and, and I don't mind the term dog man either because it's unclear whether they are dogs or wolves. And uh, dog man, dog man's an interesting term, I think, and, and that's the one they use in Michigan. So um, that doesn't bother me either, really. Okay, sounds good. Sounds good. So I won't have to tread lightly here as we go. No, no, no. Use whichever one you like. <laughs> they're, they're sort of interchangeable in my mind. And for the folks who are listening to this and who are rolling their eyes in disbelief, pick up the book because it is full of accounts from people who have seen this creature and various sort of uh, permutations of the creature. So it's not just one or two people that Linda's talked to. There's tons of them in the book. So, I mean, it'll make... I wouldn't say a true believer out of you, but it'll open your mind up to really taking a second look at this if you've if you've shut your mind down to the idea of a werewolf. I definitely recommend uh, hunting the American werewolf and the beast of Bray Road to really sort of get you caught up to what we're talking about. Now, uh, we should probably handle, I guess, the, the sort of breaking man-beast news, which is this Gable film and the recent Monster Quest episode that was on a couple days ago. And for folks who are listening to this, you know, in the middle of April – Chances are, knowing the way they run those episodes, it'll be on at some point in the near future for you or mm -hmm. go to your on-demand. Uh, and chances are, if your on-demand has History Channel, uh, mine does, 
usually holds at least four previous episodes of Monster Quest. You should be able to get it on there. I think it's the American Werewolf episode. Have you done a Monster Quest before? Yes. Um, the very first mon- Monster Quest, as a matter of fact, it was called uh, American Werewolf, and it was based on my book, Hunting the American Werewolf. And actually, um, for full dis- disclosure, with that show, not with this latest one, but with that first one, I have associate producer credits and also wrote the original script to that first Monster Quest. Oh, okay. As, as well as appearing in it. Oh, okay. And this one was called American Werewolf also, or was it a different This one, no, this one was called um, The Real Wolfman, I think. Oh, okay. Or America's Wolfman. Perhaps. There you go. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I thought there was an America in there. That's yeah, I think it's America's America's Wolfman, they call it. Yes. I, it was really mostly about the Michigan Dogman, but... Uh, from what I understand, the History Channel didn't like that term, dogman. So <laughs> <laughs> interesting. Yeah. So, what did you think of the episode altogether? Before we get into the whole Gable film and your part of of the special, because uh, I'm interested to see what you thought. Because I had just finished your book when I watched it, so I think I came into it sort of really heavily on your side, and then I start out a little bit skeptical, and I was just kind of rolling my eyes especially at the wolf biologist woman. She kind of just turned me the wrong way as we went along. Yeah, you know. I, I didn't really have any input into the, the content of, the, of this show at all. Uh, so, and I, I personally, if I had been writing the original script, I probably would have focused on some different things. I did. One of the, my favorite parts was um, Adam Davis, the the witness that was shown. They did kind of a reenactment with the creature. Mm-hmm. Um, he saw it in the cornfield, you know, okay, behind yeah. his house, and. Yeah, he's he I thought that was a really good and compelling part. And I also liked the animated creature a lot better than the one from the first one. The first one was sort of a blend between um the Beast of Bray Road and Bigfoot and it really didn't look like either, you know. So um this one was much more canine in in uh, form and feature and and I thought fit the creature much better. I would have liked to have seen more of the interviews that I, I did hours of interviews with both the filmmaker and with Steve Cook, and we we spent a whole day with each of them, and you know of course ninety seconds <laughs> ends up in the final cut, and there were a lot more interesting points that I would have liked to have seen brought out, but other than that, I thought it was a great show, and and that they really ended the season well by actually solving something. That's true, yeah, and we'll do a spoiler alert, folks. Uh, if you haven't seen the episode, chances are if you know of the Gable film, you'll have heard by now what, what we're talking about because I was stunned by the ending of the episode. As I said, I sort of went into it, sort of was like, I don't know, that, that coyote expert lady, wolf expert, just turned me off from the beginning. She seemed like she just felt like she was above the whole thing, like she was rolling her eyes at, like, why am I involved in this thing? And it was like, Right, she was very dismissive. Yeah. And- and um, actually, she was on my list of people to call for a book I'm working on, and she answered my questions in the show, so now I don't have to call her. So. <laughs> That's probably for the best. Yeah, she just, you know, she's like, at the beginning, she's like, you can fool a lot of people, and people have mass hallucinations all the time, and all this other stuff. And it was like, right. what makes you, I didn't see expert on mass hallucinations as no. part of your as part of your resume wolf biologist woman so it's like you don't have the no. right to really say that you don't know what you're talking about as far as i know and then i remembered later this morning when i was thinking back on it i was amused that she was watching the video said something to the effect of this can't be someone in a costume it moves too smoothly and i was mm-hmm. like oh not, yep. not so fast peggy not so fast yeah um so let's 
sort of blow the lid here, uh, <laughs> better late than never, on the on the Gable film. I had heard you were on Coast to Coast back in July, which I guess, having read your MySpace blog, uh, sounds like you had sort of blown the whistle on this about a month after your Coast to Coast appearance last July, but then Monster Quest asked you to take it down because they were right. going to do the episode. So I'll just turn it over to you here. Tell us about what is the Gable film, how did it come about, and then what did we find out this week here on Monster Quest that really uh, was stunning to me, just that, that it was just blown my mind when I, when I saw that at the end of the episode. I'll preface this by saying that, first of all, I personally don't view the Gable film as having anything to do with my work because my pronouncement from the very first time I saw it was, this is an interesting film, I think it's worthy of study, but it doesn't show anything but a creature that's too blurry to identify, and it certainly doesn't show any kind of an upright canine. Yeah. So I don't see why anybody's taking this as uh, evidence of a dogman or anything like that. Whether the film was real or not, it did not um, you know, seem to make any difference to me. Um, but it happened back in... Oh, it was 2007, 2008, something like that. Um, Steve Cook, and I'm thinking it was 2007, Steve Cook wrote me and a couple of other researchers first and and then um, a, a Yahoo group that I started but no longer own called Unknown Creature Spot and mentioned that he had received a film. He didn't know where it came from. Somebody found it in a state sale. He had this whole line um, made up, and he actually—he, I actually have an email to that group, and he wrote, um, "Let's see, hi group. Some of you may remember that a few months ago I had been shown a few seconds of an old eight-millimeter film that purports to show a dogman. Purports to show a dogman." After a lot of wrangling, I finally obtained the rights to the entire film from the current owner. I must say it's quite startling. I've put together a short documentary that tells the story. Before it's released to the public, I'd like to hear from this group. And that was actually dated um, September 9th, 2007. So we're in the fall of 2007 there. Actually, what had happened at the time was um, an independent amateur filmmaker named Micah Grusa, who is... He's just kind of a creative, happy-go-lucky guy who was in love with the le- the legend of the Michigan Dogman, which Steve Cook had started in 1987 as an April Fool's joke to begin with. And it sort of like happened to me five years later. It sort of mushroomed, and people people wrote him with real accounts. And, and um, he claimed from the start that he was giving all the proceeds to an animal shelter. So supposedly that was his motivation for it. But actually what had happened, going back to what I was saying, this Micah Grusa had made a film that he thought might revive people's interest in the dog man just because he liked the story. And when he made it, he put in a bunch of, he just saw it as kind of a spoof that people would see and laugh and, and think about. And he put a couple of spoilers in it, such as standing up, while in this costume with glasses on and waving at the camera so that people would know that it was an actual spoof. He didn't intend it to be a hoax to try and and fool people people all over the world. So Steve Cook looked at it and said, hmm, you know, I could use this in my own way. And he edited, which he's fully admitted, you know, other places in my saying this, 
he edited out those spoilers and spliced it back together. And he probably figured that would be detected, and so he covered it by saying the film was falling apart when he got it, and so he had to quickly move it to digital, you know, which, which, you know, very, very convenient. So those parts were edited out, and then he released it as, I have quote, saying it purports to show a dog man, and that he finally obtained the rights, you know, when all along this is what happened. Now, after it was released to the Yahoo group, somebody leaked it. It ended up on YouTube, and then it went viral, went worldwide, and everybody was debating and debating about what this creature was. Yeah. And Steve was telling us that he had a group called Mind Stage Productions that was independently examining the film. And um, I actually have researched Mind Stage Productions myself, and the closest I could find was the website of one man who runs something, some kind of a video business that doesn't involve anybody but him and Steve Cook, as far as I can tell. And it's completely related to Steve Cook. So, um, it, you know, wasn't really being examined to the extent that, you know, he led us to believe that he had a team of experts, you know, pouring over it and that they were trying and trying to, to find what it was when in yeah. fact, that really wasn't the deal. And just to briefly recap, what the film showed was some ordinary man out in the wild somewhere, chopping wood, um, kids riding snowmobiles. And it looked like it was in the 70s by all the props and things that were in it, the year of the, of the truck that was shown, when all of a sudden he's filming while riding from a truck and sees something, stops, gets out, and then this creature comes and charges him. And it's very blurry. You can't tell what it is. It's on all fours, and it's sort of bulky, and it hops around in this very weird and unsettling way. You know, yeah. that's what freaked everybody out because you just couldn't figure out what was making that sort of movement. So it ends up with another sequence where it appears that the camera the man is using has been put into the mouth of the beast and is about to be crunched to pieces. That's the last thing you see is is the inside of the mouth of this creature. Yeah, you know, which it, it was very cleverly done, and it was it was really a compelling little bit of film, and I thought it was an interesting mystery, and I totally believe Steve Cook's story because um, when my first thing came out back in 90, 1992, he phoned me and said, "Hey, this is what happened to me in Michigan five years ago. We had almost the same thing. It's just that his didn't happen to go national for some reason." And um, we became colleagues, and we exchanged information. I never met him personally until I went with the first Monster Quest show to interview him. He was actually interviewed for the first show, but it never made the the, uh, final cut. So I had met him uh, that day. The cameraman and I spent quite a bit of time interviewing him. And that was the summer before the the Gable film thing came out. So I don't know if that put ideas in his head or what. Well, maybe he's left on the cutting room floor, and he said, "I gotta, <laughs> I gotta do something to get in that show." Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know because I I know he was disappointed at the time. That is what sort of led up to everything, but it happened that last summer after I was on Sean Hannity's um, kind of little feature show on on Fox TV that he has occasionally. Okay. Yeah. Along with the Gable film, and that brought a lot of interest in the Gable film again. It had sort of died down. And it induced 
the first filmmaker to go ahead and release his sequel, which showed what looked like a man that had been bitten in half. There were, it was the upper torso of a person with entrails hanging out, and it looked like sort of a quasi-investigation was going on with a police officer, etc. Yeah. And supposedly this was supposed to be the end of the man who made the Gable film. And this one just seems so fake to me, and I, I posted a blog that's still on my MySpace blog, giving all my problems with it, you know, and I said, why, you know, if there's, the man doesn't look bit up, it could be somebody whose um, rear end is down in a hole and they just stuck some kind of animal guts out behind them, you know, there's, there were just so many ways that I saw that it could have been faked. Yeah. And I really began to become suspicious of that mind stage production examination of the film. And it just so happened that the executive producer of Monster Quest, Doug Haycheck, whom I worked with on the first Monster Quest, uh, he was very personally involved in that first show, happened to be on a radio show um, that was hosted by some people that I know. And just for fun, I phoned in to say hi to Doug. And I said, by the way, Doug, what do you think of that Gable film? And he hadn't heard of it. Oh. And so I said, you know, it's, Interesting, and I think that with your resources, with all the backing of the History Channel behind you, it would be a good thing for you to investigate, and maybe you could find out what it really is. And he took me up on that and handed it down to their producers, and that's when they went and called Steve Cook and wanted to talk to him about, uh, they started, they really did start doing their own investigation of it. And when they asked him to take a lie detector test, he got a little nervous. <laughs> yeah. Because he realized that with their superior ability, I think he thought that they would probably figure out, you know, what, what had been done to the films. And so he confessed to them. And then he also called and confessed to me. And he said, which I do give him some credit for, except he was sort of expecting that I would just sort of pat him on the head and say, that's all right, that's that's nice that you've been lying to me for two years. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and hoaxing millions of people. But, you know, he, he said that he he really thought it was time to end it and that he was felt worst of all at deceiving me and some of the other researchers. He said, that's what I really feel bad about is, you know, deceiving you. And, and also sitting by, you know, he sat by all the times when I defended him publicly and in print, and other people were too, because I had known him for, what, 17 years, um, and he had never been anything but straight up and, and uh, you know, seemed like a very good person. So I thought, I, I had all, always said that I thought the Gable film could be a hoax, but that if anything, he was the one who was being hoaxed, yeah. you know, rather than being the hoaxer. And I was very wrong about that. Yeah, very disappointing stuff. Because I trusted him, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I couldn't help but laugh at the end of Monster Quest when they said the science team investigated the film and found it to be a hoax. I was like, wait, wait a minute now. I saw, I just watched them investigate it, and it didn't seem like yeah. they, they didn't, <laughs> they were left saying this definitely isn't a man in a costume, and we need to yeah. know more information about where it came from. Yeah, that's the TV part of it, you know. Yeah, yeah. And of course, if they're going to spend all that money on the production, they're going to want to take credit for them. I, that's I expected that basically. I figured they would say that. Although I was a little disappointed that they didn't really reveal more about the conversation. I mean, I grilled him on camera for the better part of a day, and really only three little questions were shown. 
And the one that I really wanted to be on film wasn't. It was the one where I said to him, so are you telling me that you think it's okay to hoax millions of people as long as it's for charity? And what do you say to that? Well, he was he looked very abashed. He was kind of ambivalent about it. You know, the the answer wasn't very satisfactory. But from what he's saying, you know, now it appears that he really does think it's okay and that whatever you do is fine. But to me, you know, I I don't think most charities want money to be raised for them with deception, with deceptive practices. And if you follow that line of reasoning that, well, as long as you do something for charity, it's okay. Well, you know, I really like the International Heifer Project, so... I think I'm going to go downtown Elkhorn and rob a bank <laughs> so that I can give it to International Heifer Foundation. And that will be just fine because it's for charity. Yeah, it's it's disappointing. I was Like I said, I was stunned because you just don't see that many high-profile hoaxes that get on, on debunked that, that quickly. So it was like, wow, right. I didn't see this coming because I thought it was just going to be an investigation into the film and they weren't going to be able to figure it out. And then it was like... Right. Well, everyone so far, I mean, even... As, there, as late as last July, when it was on the Hannity program, all you could really say about it at that time still was that it had not been proved or disproved. Yeah. You know, but really, a true crack investigative team had not had the advantage of going and looking at the original film. So, certainly, you know, you can see why it hadn't been proved or disproved now. Is it tense now between you and Steve? I guess it sounds like it. I mean, I'm well, you know, best. it was awkward. I mean, I, as I said, I spent the better part of a day with him, and it was awkward, you know, because he knew that I wasn't pleased. But, you know, he did what he did, and he has his reasons, I guess. And I'm, I'm not a person that likes to sit and hold on to anger and 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 uh, that sort of thing. I think that what goes around comes around, and and I I just trust for that sort of process to take place rather than, um, you know, inserting myself into it anymore. And as as I keep saying, really, it has no bearing on my work or research because from the get-go I've said it doesn't prove or disprove any kind of cryptid creature. It's a blurry quadruped. And to my mind, it was never any different from any of the many blob squatch pictures and films of Bigfoot that get looked at where... There's like a brown patch in the trees, and people are drawing red crayon lines around it and saying, yeah, you can say, see, this This is a Bigfoot. Oh, yeah, I've seen those. You know, and I get lots of pictures and things from people who uh, either email them to me or they'll, there's a picture of what's obviously somebody in a werewolf suit out in the corn, you know, and it's their cousin Lenny in the werewolf suit, and you can see that. It's, it's really, really hard to fake um, somebody in like an animal suit and make it look like it's an animal and not a human in a suit. It really is much harder than people think. And it's pretty obvious most of the time. And I also know that hoaxes do go on and that there are people out there who wear suits and run out in the road foolishly because they could get shot or hit by a car and four just on Bray Road alone. But none of them have been connected with any of the sightings in any way. They're at different times, you know, so I think most... Most of them are just sort of uh, copycat actions, wanting to sort of have have fun with it, and and even most of those don't really have a bearing on the actual sightings that are reported. Yeah, it's going to turn into a no pun intended boy who cried wolf with this guy because he has zero credibility now. If if right. someone were to give him some real footage or real information, it's like 
you already led us down this path for two, three years, so... Right. Well, even when it comes to listening to him explain the backstory, I mean, you know, as, as I told him, I, I can forgive him, but I can't really trust him in any way as to what he says about anything, because I have, you know, documented untruths that, that he was telling me that really weren't even necessary, you know, it was just kind of this continued tail spinning. Exactly. Well, we'll leave him to the dustbin of esoteric history now. And yes, I, I think that's the best place to put it. I really do. Uh, discussing your research into the man-wolves. Let's start sort of uh, on, a, on a sociological level. When this whole story sort of like burst on the scene and everything, uh, you talk about how Lauren Coleman was really helpful and everything with your research, but what was the reaction of the cryptozoological community, uh, you know, to the emergence of this new creature? Because you know, they're a little bit protective of their turf in the sense, mm -hmm. and, and, they're, and with any esoteric field, everyone's sort of got their guard up about um, right. any situation that could result in uh, them being laughed at. So it's like, right. you know, with the werewolf aspect of it, I can see how people yeah. would sort of have their, their guard up about that. So I'm wondering what the reaction was um, and how it's changed maybe over the years as more of these case sightings have come in and sort of the case has been strengthened for the possibility of some kind of uh, bipedal canine creature. Well, at first reaction was really slow. You know, it took about um, 10 or 11 years between the time that the first sightings came out and the time that my book, The Beast of Bray Road, was published. I think it came out in 2003. And really, I don't think anybody had paid too much attention to it during that time other than the few TV shows. You know, there just, there just wasn't a lot of reaction from um, the people studying it. And really, there weren't as many people in the field at that time. You know, it it, it was um, not, it was kind of just bef before the really big cryptozoology paranormal explosion began yeah. um, during that first decade. It was just kind of simmering along. Once the book came out, um, it received a little more, and I think reaction was mixed. Some were genuinely interested and surprised that there were this body of contemporary sightings of something that really didn't fit into any other category. Um, some tried to lump it in as just a different form of Bigfoot, and, and that still happens. And my answer to that is, well, would you lump an out-of-place hyena as just um, another form of chimpanzee? Yeah. You know, just because you're expecting to see chimpanzees and you see hyena, would you say, well, it must be a chimpanzee, you know, it, it a chimpanzee with a longer snout and, and a chimpanzee with funny feet, but still a chimpanzee. It's the same, it, it's a really big difference between canine and primate that you just can't get over if you look at the witness descriptions. So there's been that faction, you know, that wants to make it a kind of Bigfoot, and maybe they always will. It, does, it doesn't really matter to I me. Mean, people can have their own opinions, and, and they're certainly welcome to them. But um, basically, you know, there aren't too many other people who are, documenting this this type of, of uh, sighting, although they're growing. You know, I, I notice more and more there are places where... Uh, and, and actually, Steve Cook had set up um, his own site, michigan-dogman.com, where he had begun to collect sightings and was really setting himself up, I think, as um, a purported researcher in this field. <laughs> well, those days are long gone. 
I think so. Yeah, I think so. Now, one of the things I found interesting in, in reading uh, Hunting the American Werewolf is that there's also sort of this other permutation of the creature that's sort of not necessarily a man-wolf, but like a bear-wolf. Yeah, and that's an odd thing. Um, I've pinned it down to a certain region. There's, there seems to be kind of a circle in Wisconsin. It's almost like a, a, a regional variation, you know, kind of like with wolves. There are red wolves out west and gray timber wolves out east. And within a certain circular area of Wisconsin, I haven't really had it reported anywhere else, that runs roughly from Green Bay up to a little north to over to, to Wausau and down around to the county north of, of Milwaukee County, Washington County. Um, a lot of the reports seem to be of something that is wolf-like with its head and feet. You know, it doesn't walk flat-footed like a bear, but and and also has um, you know other canine characteristics. But it's a little brawnier than uh, you'd expect a wolf to be, and and darker and shaggier. And people say it looks like something that's a cross between a wolf and a bear that walks bipedally. And of course, bears can walk bipedally. For short distances, they really don't normally do that in the wild. Although there's a great YouTube video of a three-legged bear that has learned to do this and walks very well on its hind feet. But you can still tell it's a bear because its legs are so short and it's got that bear-shaped body. Yeah. This thing is really predominantly canine, but it's thicker, thicker-chested, and and just reminds people in its body a little bit more of a bear. So it's and there was a tradition I found out from uh, my friend investigator Todd Roll who grew up around Wausau, that they called it the bear wolf. I wasn't the one who made this up. Um, hunters were running into this thing in the woods around Wausau for years, and it looked like a cross between a wolf and a bear. So that that was the – and they actually had a, a – there's a road leading to the outside of town that um, has a different name, but the locals call it Bear Wolf Road because – it leads to the hunting areas where this thing was often seen. And one thing I try to do with sightings is map them. I sit, uh, when I'm working, I, I have um, atlases and that sort of thing, and I go to Google Earth, and I try to sort of map where things are occurring so I can tell where there are trends and hotspots. And that's how I, I was able to tell that the bear wolf reports were contained to this one sort of circular geographic area in the state of Wisconsin, which... Why is that? You know, the people didn't know about each other. Most of them had never heard of anything and just realized it might be vaguely related to the Beast of Bray Road and contacted me. So, you know, why strange geographic concentration of this one sort of anomalous version of the creature? I don't know. Yeah, it's pretty strange. I was surprised to see that it also has some kind of uh, linkage to the fossil record with this amphician. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that um, wrong. But. I think it's amphicyon. Okay. Yeah, there's a very uh, long-ago ancestor um, that was common to the, the what branched out to be bears and wolves, and it sort of contained features of both. And I have some drawings of it in, in the book that you're probably looking at. But it died out really, really long ago. You know, and it's just, I think it just, uh, it's harder to believe that something that really went extinct so many, you know, millennia ago would still be roaming around the woods. I think it's easier to imagine some adaptation or mutation of, uh, you know, a bear or a wolf that managed to reproduce and, and show itself. Interesting. Okay. So you're not a fan of the 
you know, holdover sort of idea that it survived somehow? Not in this case. You know, I, I think that there are, there are certain animals that um, are fairly, I think if you're talking about something that died within thousands of years or hundreds of years ago, then you can kind of entertain notions of it, um, you know, maybe being a relic species. But when you've got something that died out with the other megafauna, you know, ages, and actually it was before that because this this was, as I said, an ancestor to both of them. So it was a long time ago. Yeah. And that to me is just really a stretch. Okay, yeah. Like Nothing's the- impossible, but to me it's a real stretch. Yeah, like giant sloths and stuff like that. Right. If if that lived, then yeah, why wouldn't you be seeing giant sloths? And why wouldn't we see more of them if they were that successful that they could hold out when everything else died out over billions of years ago? Then they should be a fairly dominant species still exactly. by now, I would think. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, That's just my thought, and I'm not a biologist. It's just my my own version of logic about it. That's fine. Yeah. Hey. I'm no biologist either, so we're we're in good company. So, <laughs> um, now what about the water connection with the man wolf? That seems to come up quite a bit throughout the book, and and I found that yeah. to be interesting because we're always sort of looking for patterns or connections here between these sightings and these stories to try and figure out exactly what this is all about. Right, and the water thing is something that I noticed very early on. Um, where wherever it's sighted, it's within fairly close uh, proximity to some sort of body of water. Now, I have to also say that in Wisconsin, that's not such an unusual thing because we're abundantly blessed with water. And so is Michigan. Some of the other states where it's been seen, you know, there are vast stretches without water, and yet this thing shows up where the water is still. So it does seem to be something that attracts it. And if it's a natural creature, that's not surprising because carnivores need to drink a lot of water because they eat almost exclusively protein and they need something to um, dilute that and and uh, they're in big trouble if they can't get enough water to kind of counteract the, the, all the protein that they're eating. They don't get water from plant-based materials like herbivores do. Mm-hmm. So they're going to need water and that really isn't that surprising. But then you get into, you know, there's, there's the big debate as to is this a flesh and blood creature, or is it, if not an actual werewolf, something like um, a visitor from another dimension or a conjured-up creature, such as a, a practitioner of magic arts would, would make, if you believe in that, that kind of thing. And when you start looking at folklore in, in every region, um, Native American, European, whatever, waterways are always places where uh, weird beasts materialize. And the Native Americans believe that um, springs were particularly places that could be portals from what they would call the, you know, the other world. And I went and interviewed uh, a tribal elder and a um, person with a master's in anthropology of uh, Wisconsin's Ho-Chunk tribe. And she told me that the belief in this creature and the Bigfoot go back to their grandfathers, which in their terms means not literal grandfathers, but um, in antiquity, you know, their, their stories from antiquity, that these creatures are spirit creatures and that they live in another, the spirit world, which um, modern science might say as another dimension, and that they can come back and forth, and when they're here, 
they're entirely corporeal. They need to eat. They leave tracks. They, you know, function as normal animals do. But when they want to go back, they find the portal and go back. And that's why you never find dead ones. You know, it explains a lot of that. It actually fits the paradigm really, really well. Yeah. But water is very important to them. They they use the springs as portals. And in European tradition, you know, the waterways are, are the same sort of thing. And that sort of begs the question of, of which one you believe. Yeah. Well, I seem I feel like I come around more on the side of some kind of interdimensional thing just because, like, in the book also there's a number of uh, Bigfoot reports that you also sort of right. sprinkle in there. And it's like – and you make a point later that, you know, there's other creatures as well. And it's like, a, yeah. you, you call it a monster potpourri. And right. it's like, how could all these, how could a Bigfoot and a bipedal canine and in some cases a lizard man right. all be <laughs> living in the same small patch of land? Reminds me of conversations I've had with Nick Redfern about the mm-hmm. uh, the UK, yeah. the UK Bigfoot and how right. it's just virtually impossible for a Bigfoot to exist in the UK just based on the geography and, and the way it's laid out and all that stuff. So it has to be right. some kind of interdimensional thing. I mean, it doesn't have to be, obviously, but, I mean, in my mind, I feel like that seems to be the most logical reasoning behind this because it just doesn't seem uh, feasible for, you know, these, at least just let's say with the uh, the Wolfman and the Bigfoot, for them to be coexisting in the same sort of region. It seems like one would have to be dominant over the other and, and run the other one out because you right. think they'd be competing for the same sort of resources and stuff. Right. They both seem very territorial. Yeah, I've talked with this about this with Nick, too. And I, I tend to agree that he, he has a lot of good reasons that you really can't refute. It is very hard to imagine that so many large carnivores, predators, could exist in the same territorial space competing for the same game. Um, when you look at how other predators like cougars and bears and wolves need to spread out in order to have enough hunting territory to sustain themselves and how many they have to sustain in order to maintain a breeding population. You know, you can't just have a lone Bigfoot with no breeding population. It'll die and it's gone. So you have to imagine that if you see one, there are lots more if you're talking about a natural animal because they have to breed and they have to feed families and that sort of thing. Now, that being said, there is a lot of game and actually it does in some ways explain why you see it around roads so often because, well, one of the easiest places to get fresh meat now is to hang hang around a road and and pick up dead raccoons, you know, with modern highway traffic. And really... A lot of the sightings, a great, great amount of the sightings occur from people who are driving and see it either running across the road in front of them or by the side of the road in the process of eating or carrying or running off with some kind of dead animal carcass. So it seems that whatever these things are, are scavengers too. But, but yeah, back to the original thing, it also does seem that wherever you get a lot of these reports of unknown upright canines, which is my really preferred terminology for them, that you also have these other things. And then you get back to um, Fordian researcher John Keel's idea of what he called window areas, which we might think of as portals to other dimensions, where everything comes through from someplace else. And people see it, and, um, you know, one person might see one thing and report a giant bird, and the other person reports another thing. And I think I identify in Hunting the American Werewolf just one such spot 
it's a 13 by 13 square mile area that I just noticed is bounded and filled up with just an amazing variety of strange phenomena. Mm-hmm. Just north of Fall Worth County, I call it the Jefferson Square of Weirdness. And in within that 13 square mile area, you have um, a principal ancient um, Native American mound site uh, that's a state park. You have uh, numerous Bigfoot and manwolf sightings. There's a big bird. There's a so-called haunted road uh, where people have strange experiences. Um, all of this within this little tiny area. And how do you explain that? It's difficult. There's, there, there seems to be these window zones all over the, the country, all over the world. Uh, it's one mm-hmm. of my latest uh, sort of areas of interest. Um, I'd like to look more at those sort of uh, ideas because it just doesn't make any sense that there are these places that seem to be just hotbeds where anything can happen. Right. And it defies explanation, really. It does. People often write me and ask if I've heard of uh, Skinwalker Ranch, which was a place in Utah. It's not um, available to be researched anymore, but there's a great book about it mm-hmm. by George Knapp and Calm Kelleher, yep. where people actually saw the portals, you know, openings in the sky that showed different worlds and things would come out of them. And one of the things was what looked like a giant werewolf. It's yeah, it's interesting. It's definitely strange. Um, now let's talk about the effigy, the effigy mounds, and uh, the sightings overlay because I thought that was really remarkable and quite a breakthrough on your part to sort yeah. of make this connection. Um, and I was just blown away that that these things seem to line up so well. So I guess talk about that. Explain what the effigy mounds are and the discovery that you made as far as how there seems to be some kind of connection between these mounds and the sightings. Yeah, it's very strange. Um, Wisconsin is very unique in that it contains, I think the percentage is 96% of animal-shaped ancient effigy mounds in the world. Um, The only other ones are kind of extensions of the Wisconsin ones that um, go over the state line into Iowa and Illinois, and then the um, Serpent Mound in Ohio. Otherwise, they're pretty much all in Wisconsin which is strange in itself, and we don't know why. We don't know exactly who built them, although many believe that it was the ancestors of our present-day Ho-Chunk because um, many of the animal shapes line up very well with their ancestral totem figures, and they also have the, their own tradition about it. And by the way, they are usually very close-mouthed about it. They don't, they don't like to talk about those things very much. But what they are are... Um, very much larger than life, somewhat abstracted representations of various kinds of animals that were built up in very neatly incised, beautifully crafted earthen figures. And a few have burials in them, but just as many did not. Most of them were desecrated um, back in the 1800s, early 1900s by um Europeans who like to go have grave opening parties on on Sunday afternoons and see if they could find, you know, valuable relics. Um, So a lot of them were lost, but fortunately um, there was a man named Increase, a early surveyor who recorded a lot of them. So um, many are preserved, and and we we know where many of the other ones were because we have the old surveys to look at them. And many guesses have been made as to their purpose. Um, They were probably 
ritualistic is the best thing that most people can come up with, um, since most of them weren't used for burials. But I've always been fascinated with them. And I was looking at a book that had come out on them that had a map that was categorized according to different kinds of animal forms and, and where they were. And I was looking at the map of where a particular type of, of animal effigy mound called either the panther mound or the lizard mound, or more correctly, as we've learned, the water spirit mound were distributed. And something clicked, and I went and grabbed my map that I had made of major hot spots of Wisconsin sightings. Not every sighting, but the major hot spots. And they tallied almost exactly. And I went and transferred their map and enlarged it to my map on transparencies and overlaid them, and it was almost a perfect match. And I've done this at conferences and, you know, overlaid the transparencies on uh, um, an overhead machine, and the people just gasped because it's just so striking and seems so against the possibilities of chance that the major manual sighting hotspots would so closely tally with these. And actually, that discovery was what earned me the chance to go and have the interview with the Ho-Chunk elder because I'd been trying and trying, and they had never listened to me before at that. But they were extremely interested in this development. Um, they hadn't realized that, you know, and, and wanted to see the data. Oh, interesting. I thought maybe they had already known that, and then, you know, they were like, ah, oh, shit, she figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, you know, they don't tell everything. They really don't. Who knows Who knows what the truth is? But, no, they seemed, they seemed surprised about it. Um, they, as I said, told me that the, this creature was part of their background lore and something that they don't usually tell outsiders. But they also told me that there was a very ancient, um, that there was a, a water spirit clan at one time that related to these mounds, that there was um, an, an insignia for it that was found on some rock drawings. And um, she drew it for me with the promise that I would never reproduce it for pe other people to see. Mm -hmm. And I haven't. But I can tell you that it was upright and it had ears on top of its head. Interesting. It didn't look like, um, you know, some sort of lizard at all. Strange. Yeah. So what to make of that? You know, it just um, totally depends on if you buy into that belief system or not. And I can't prove either thing one way or the other. So my usual um, thought process is, well, without evidence, I don't really have the right to say, yes, it's this or yes, it's that. And as soon as I do, my mind is closed and I might miss other clues or evidence that would pop up. So I just remain open-minded on it. I try to, those to me are the, the, the two main theories that make the most sense to me are the Native American one that fits all the paradigms. Um, and if you think about it, that is supported by modern physics that claims there are other dimensions. Yeah. You know, that's, that's kind of cutting edge um, scientific work right now. Or that somehow these creatures have learned to um, adapt themselves to walk upright when it's uh, logical and, and uh, handy for them to do so. And that um, I, I don't know if it would be taught among themselves or if they would um, have adapted their feet. Footprints that we found do show that their, their feet seem to be a bit longer and bigger 
than you would expect from a wolf of their size. So, And when you think about it, a creature that walks on its toe pads doesn't have much to balance on when it's standing on two feet, and larger toe pads would be a, a big advantage. So, um, so that, yeah. Yeah, so, so it's kind of between a, a natural animal that's adapted to do this and the Native American theory, in my mind, are the best explanation. And I should say, too, that I don't believe either one of these would cover every sighting. I think that if you look at the body of sightings as a whole, you're going to find some different explanations for different ones. For instance, there will be some that are definitely misidentified other animals. I think especially some of the ones that are uh, sightings of weird quadrupeds where people say, well, it was just it was too big and too weird to be a dog or a wolf. But there are some really strange-looking hybrids out there and if you and some really, really large dogs. You know, a Russian wolfhound does look like the size of a small calf, which is one of the descriptors um, people will often use. So I do think there can be misidentifications. I know there are hoaxers out there that provide some of them. Um, sometimes your eyes just do play tricks on you. You know, so I, and, and then there are species that might uh, have mange and look different. So I do think that there will be a certain percentage that can be explained by that kind of thing. Exactly, yeah. Because, like, you have some sightings that the creature never really gets up on two feet. So we can almost sort of classify that as sort of, um, like, separate from the bipedal canine creature that we're primarily looking at. Right, and I I do, if there's something kind of compelling about it, I, I do some, include some of those stories because, you know, when it turns around and looks at you with its eyes glaring red, and we know that the normal color of eye shine for dogs and wolves is like a yellow-green, um, then it takes us into, like, the region of the phantom black hounds, which yeah. are more of a phenomenon of England, but you have reams and reams of reports of these phantom black hounds in, in uh, England, and... I seem to have a fair number of sightings that fall into that category. Even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolf bane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Well, that's a very rare piece. It shows the wolf in the pentagram, the sign of the werewolf. Werewolf? What's that? Oh, that's a human being who at certain times of the year changes into a wolf. You mean runs around on all fours and bites and snaps and bays at the moon? Oh, even worse than that sometimes. This is going to go completely down a different path, but... Okay, that's great. Uh, my favorite theory in the book, you don't provide it, it's from someone who sent it to you. And if I was if I was to choose which one I hoped was the truth and hoped was true, and it's probably just because I cheer for the story and, and cheer for the most bizarre, was the, was the Wolfmen as Aliens theory yeah. i just loved it it was so it was so <laughs> richly detailed and and, and creepy and yeah. just slightly terrifying so, yeah this, and yeah. this came from a remote viewer and you know i took the premise of uh okay this this whole topic is really so out there that i'm just going to include whatever at least well-developed idea somebody has sent me just so that we, I'll take that and do it in one chapter just to cover all the bases because you never know where something can lead you. Yeah. But this was from a remote viewer who did used to work for the U.S. government and has certain credentials that are impressive. And he was uh, remote viewing the Beast of Bray Road 
And this is the conclusion that he came to. He encountered these entities in his experiences and realized that they were sort of scouts from another planet, and they're just sort of waiting for our apocalypse to happen so they can take over. Yeah, it's strange. Yeah, yeah. It's very strange. But And it is terrifying, you know, but, you know, it's one person's theory, and so... And remote viewing is something that has some credence to it, so... I thought some people might be interested to hear that. It's certainly, certainly not any stranger than the theory that humans can change their actual corpuscles and blood and bones and teeth into the form of a wolf. Exactly, yeah, yeah. You do uh, spend a little time in the book talking about these people that seem to think that they can do that, which I thought was interesting. But I'm of the opinion that, you know, considering... There are people that claim to do that, and yet yet can provide no proof that they can do that. It's sort exactly. of like, oh, okay, you know, yeah. you're just a new version of like a goth kid. Pretty much, I had this standing um, request that anybody who can do this, next time the moon is full, have your girlfriend chain you up in the basement with a video cam, and then send me the the, the video. Post it on YouTube. Don't even send it to me. Post it on YouTube. Yeah. And it has yet to happen. Yeah. And in this in this age, you wouldn't even need to do that. You could just open your laptop and and uh turn on Skype or something, you know. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And it just it it hasn't happened and I I just think that's the biggest stretch of all. I really do. And that's different. It is a different thing than buying into things like Tibetan tulpas or Native American skinwalkers where the process is not really changing physical flesh, but it's projecting sort of a spirit image or a, or a, an astral, if you will, image um, involves um, kind of a different thing, and it's it's more of a, a of an image covering the body or going out separately from the body and and doing things rather than um, your your actual physical body changing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's more of like. Some kind of mind creation type thing. Right, right. And and that to me is a different ballgame. Within the realm of the metamorphosis, have there been any stories that you've heard about any sort of situation like that? Or are those pretty rare? I know that you start the book out, uh, Hunting the American Werewolf, with someone who did see some kind of uh, dog into ape almost metamorphosis. But aside from yeah. that, are these, are these kind of rare? Well, in the context of the, the bulk of the sightings, they really are not a very large percentage, but they do occur um, here and there. It really is very unusual to have somebody say that um, they witnessed a morphing, you know, and one person who told me that and had quite an involved story, um, but I was a little suspicious because he did a drawing that looked like a copy of a cartoon, and that's always kind of a red flag for me. It shows me that somebody's been practicing drawing cartoon werewolves. They're kind of involved with the subject and, you know, maybe decide they're going to try and pull something off. And then he did confess to me that he made it up. Although, um, I I always had some questions about his confession, too, but you can sit and play those mind games with yourself forever. The fact is they really are fairly rare. Um, I was surprised that I'm researching. I'm, I'm actually writing the sequel to Hunting the American Werewolf right now. And I did write another book in between called Werewolf that's part of a young adult series for Chelsea House. It's part of their Mysteries, Legends, and Unexplained Phenomena series that gets a lot more into the lore and the history and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. But in writing this 
third sequel to The Beast of Bray Road and Hunting the American Werewolf, I was doing some research, and I was kind of shocked. I happened to have an old copy of Fangoria magazine. Okay, yeah. Which, um, if some people don't know what that is, it's kind of for the movie and animation industry. It's sort of an insider's magazine as to um, production. And I had bought that one because it was about the Jack Nicholson Wolfman movie. And it starts out with one of, I can't remember if he was the the, one, the screenwriter or one of the main producers, but it was someone connected with the film who believed that they had actually had a true werewolf transformation experience, which kind of shocked me that somebody would write that, you know, yeah. for, for this magazine, and, and I hadn't realized that was part of the film before. And what do you do with that? Is it a psychosis? Is it, um, you know, he didn't say he was eating magic mushrooms or anything like that. So it's it's really hard to say. I, I tend to doubt it, really, that he literally changed. But I have had people write this to me and say, yes, I literally changed. My form changed. But that's a perception. It's a personal perception. I've never had anybody write me and say, I watched this person change and, I you know, I can prove it to you. So that's a little different, I think. Whereas with with sightings of Bigfoot and Manwolf, there are lots of times where multiple people see the same thing, and it's really not a condition where you could claim mass hallucination. Um, and they, you know, why would they see? And if they were both hallucinating, why would they see the exact same form? You know, it it just doesn't make any sense. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I did. I really enjoy your section on the weird Pennsylvania creatures, just because it seemed like. Pennsylvania just has a whole bunch of different strange animals that are even outside of this realm almost. Uh, it's a strange yeah. sort of window zone in and of itself of, of odd uh, cryptids, if you will. Yeah, I call it the Pennsylvania pack. <laughs> <laughs> and the only thing that I can really put it to is that uh, Pennsylvania has this strong population of, of Europeans that were um, kind of inundated with werewolf lore in the old country. Germany was just a hotbed of werewolves. And a lot of these uh, settlers seem to have brought these traditions with them. You know, so they they not only have their own tales, but they're probably looking for it in the New World. And, and a lot of these do go back to early settler times in Pennsylvania. Um, there's this one called the, the Albatwitches of Lancaster County. And these are kind of like stickman Bigfoot, yeah. for lack of a better better way to put them. And they're supposed to uh, inhabit apple orchards and, you know, snitch the apples. So <laughs> it's really, really strange. And, and the interesting thing is that there was a modern-day incident where um, a cryptozoologist researcher um, Rick Fisher, I think his name was, encountered some of these walking along the road, you know, and he said, I'm a Bigfoot researcher. My first thought was that this must be a skinny one, but a juvenile Bigfoot would never be that thin, and even a human couldn't be that thin. And he said it walked like a human, not ape-like, although its arms were longer, and it was swinging its arms. So it sort of brings you back to wondering if Pennsylvania is just a giant window area where all these other strange versions are coming from something. Yeah, it's really weird. It's really weird and, and 
just when you think you've heard one weird one, then you have another weird story, right? <laughs> like, it's like, well, these things just keep coming here in Pennsylvania. It's strange. Right. Now, is there any sort of, like, predominant behavior of the man-wolf when people see it? Now, you say in the book, to your knowledge, it's never actually hurt anyone. So it sounds like it may be, um, you know, people are sort of coming across this thing accidentally. Right. And so what's it, what's it sort of, what's the general behavior like of the creature? Well... This is one thing that convinces me that a lot of the stories are um, sincere because you'd think if people were going to make up a, if you were going to make up a monster story, you know, you'd want it to be dramatic and it would be, you know, doing things and maybe hitting you and that kind of thing or <laughs> something. But yeah. in almost every case, the creature, if it's out in the open, it'll form like a bluff attack. It, it might chase people for a little while or growl or act menacing. They think it's going to eat them. And then the second they're distracted or turn around to run, it goes and runs the opposite direction and ducks into whatever cover is nearest, just trying to get out of sight and not be seen. And a lot of them will sometimes say, you know, I just had this weird feeling that it was angry that I saw it, which is a weird thing to think, you know, yeah. uh, uh, if it's a natural animal. But I hear that over and over again. It really has a very, very constant MO. The one exception was reported to me by a man up in Quebec province. He was um, a city person who was out in the wild on just taking a short vacation in the middle of nowhere by himself and encountered one of these unknown upright canines. And it actually lunged at him and grazed his hip with its tooth, he said. And he went into a hospital and told them that a bear did it because he didn't want to say what it really was because he thought they would laugh at him. <laughs> and he sent me a picture of it. And, of course, and I, I have that posted somewhere um, online, I think on my Beast of Bray Road site, but, uh, which has a couple pages missing for reasons I can't figure out just the last couple of weeks. But um, he had this um, jagged edge. It had this jagged edge. It looked like it was done by something like a tooth, like an animal tooth. But there's nothing stamped man-wolf on it. You know, you, you, you just can't tell what made it. But he said, and I agree, that... If it had really wanted to get him, it could have just disemboweled him in that one leap, you know, with yeah. the size of it and its fangs and its claws. And he thinks that it was sort of a a scare tactic, kind of a, a fake lunge meant to scare him off, and it just accidentally grazed him. Because nothing that close that's a, a big predator would miss at such a close range. Exactly, yeah. So, and that's the only, the only reported injury of any kind that I have. It scratches cars and dense cars. And it seems like um, in my last, my latest collection that, I, that I'm writing up right now, there seem to be more incidents of ones that run along sidecars and try to keep up with them, you know, until it speeds away, um, which, I, which I find interesting. Yeah. 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 Like, why? <laughs> exactly. This is looking for help of some kind. Now, obviously, in the Bigfoot research community, you know, we've, we've got the plaster casts and we've got various right. hair samples and some scat samples and stuff like that. What sort of, um, you know, physical evidence do we have in the, in the man-wolf, you know, department? And it seems like it would be kind of difficult in the sense that uh, even if you got a cast of a man-wolf print for the skeptics just to be like, well, it's just a big dog. You know, we right. don't have any proof that... It was standing on two feet based on the, you know what I mean? It's like right. you're, you're dealing in even more difficult territory as far as trying to 
come up with something solid on, on the mammal. But what, what do we have so far? Well, the best thing so far uh, is, in my opinion, photographs of, of prints, um, some that I took from an incident that happened between Racine and Milwaukee. I've got those on my MySpace blog. If you scroll back to June 2007, you can see the prints of that. Um, because I get similar ones. They're, they're around eight and a half inches long and show the claws. Um, I did show that particular one that's on my blog to, um, Wisconsin's resident wolf expert. And he agreed that they were canine prints, which could mean wolf or dog. Um, it's, it's hard to tell, but they're very clear and delineated in a mud hole and the valuable thing is that there are deer tracks along with them that obviously have not spread, so you can assume that these prints wouldn't have spread either because they were made what looks like exactly at the same time. So there you have these eight, eight and a half inch long dog prints, with, and they're slightly elongated, which is what a lot of witnesses um, have said about the paws of these creatures, yeah. um, and show the claws, which means they're not cougars or cats. I think that if you got fur or scat or DNA of any kind from the, these creatures, I really believe that it wouldn't be any sort of proof because I think it would just show up as canine or, or wolf, you know, dog or wolf mm -hmm. DNA, because they don't look any different. They, they look like um, a slightly adapted in terms of feet and maybe a little bit uh, around the shoulders canine or wolf. Mm -hmm. They they don't have human faces. They don't, you know, um, it, and I think if you found a dead one, whereas let's say you found a dead Bigfoot, a real dead Bigfoot, you yeah. know you had something. Exactly. You would know what it was. If you found a dead one of these, I really believe you would just say, well, that's a really big dead wolf. And yeah, he's got kind of long feet, doesn't he? And that would be all you would think because it's their... Um, mode of running and walking and their behavior that is odd, not their actual physical. You know, people aren't seeing these things with wings or um, chupacabra spikes or, you know, odd appendages or anything like that. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So if you found it on the ground, you wouldn't know that it was walking around before because right. you, you just wouldn't know it was regular Wolf. Exactly, and some people have reported seeing a couple of things that sounded like this thing dead in the road. One that stretched from one side of the uh, road shoulder to another. Oh, it, yeah, they're they're very large, you know. And timber wolves can easily grow that, maybe not easily, but they do grow that large. You know, there are um, reports of them every now and then of uh, dead ones that when you hang them up, they're seven feet tall. Yikes. So, yeah. It's surprising considering the number of reports and everything, first of all, that a lot of them come from hunters. It's surprising that you don't hear too many that take a shot at this thing. And second, it's surprising in this day and age, with the exception of the, the, the Gable film, <laughs> mm -hmm. that we don't have too much uh, photograph or, or video evidence of any of these sightings or anything like that. But I guess, you know, you just hold out hope that one will turn up, right? Right. And I think Perhaps if we do, the best hope is from some sort of game camera or the day when people start wearing um, video cams mounted on their hats or pith helmets or whatever. Because in most cases, when people encounter these, whether it's in the car or out in the wild, 
the encounters don't last that long. You know, maybe it's 20, 30 seconds, and you're in shock and panic. You're wondering if the thing's going to eat you. If you're in the car, you have to, before you can take a picture, you have to slow down the car, hope that it stands there while you get your camera. And even if it's on the front seat, you have to pick up the camera, turn it on. And it's just really hard to get a picture like that. You know, it's just um, not very not very feasible. I, I hope that someday someone does. But you just can't count on it that I know of. Have you ever gotten anything uh, in, in, in way of uh, video or photo evidence? Not that I thought was um, identifiable or, or credible. Yeah. You know, it's just not um, it's just not an, an easy thing to do. Um, sooner or later, I hope somebody does. And I keep looking at things. I I want this thing to be photographed or filmed more than anybody else. But um, until somebody, well, I think what it's going to take is somebody to get perhaps on a game camera, a very well-disguised game camera, um, at least a minute or two of clear view of one of these things moving around and showing itself to be an actual animal or creature and doing things that a, a normal one can't in order for it to be proven. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And I think it's unlikely, frankly. It's tough. It's tough. Now, do these, obviously you've, pointed out that in the book that, you know, you've gotten these uh, bipedal canine reports in other parts of the region sort of around Wisconsin, but have this, Mm -hmm. have you heard now of this being spread, you know, throughout the U.S., California, all these other places, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, This third book that I'm writing takes on lots of other, I have many more sightings from other states, Oklahoma, Kansas, um, there are more east of the Mississippi than west. Interesting. Um, but Texas has its fair share, um, and especially get down into get down into those southern states, Kentucky and Georgia, Alabama has a few really interesting ones, Illinois. So and and then they do sort of seem to follow a wide band along and around the Great Lakes, uh, which which is interesting. And I, and I'm trying to map all of these in the, the third book and come up with a more comprehensive U.S. mapping of where the sightings occur. But, yeah, it's it's very widespread. By no means is it just Wisconsin. Uh, Wisconsin is a leader in sightings, but part of that may be affected by the fact that I live here and more people know about me and know to report them. Yeah, yeah. Now, how do you feel about being the the werewolf woman now? Are you <laughs> <laughs> is that something that, you know... I'm sure you're happy about it because it's really become its own sort of uh, realm of esoterica, and it's cool to be, you know, on the cutting edge of that. But at the same time, you're ever like, oh, geez, wish I'd never taken on this Bray Road thing because, you know. I well, there are moments, some. you know, the, I, I have to admit this this whole Gable film incident has made me really wonder, you know. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are moments, but, and I always wonder once I write a book if, if I'll ever write another one or if this will be the end of it. And it wouldn't bother me if it were, you know, because I've never had an agenda. Um, I never started out trying to prove it or anything else like that. I really have always felt more that as long as people are reporting it, I'm sort of the keeper of the lore. I'll keep trying to explain it. I'll keep trying to study it and research it. But, you know, if it all went away tomorrow, that's okay. I do other things. I'm an artist. I have an art rep and do um, commercial and fine art. I'm working on some novels. 
Um, so it's, you know, it's kind of not like the be-all and end-all of my life. It's, it's something I'm interested in and that as long as I feel there's a lot of other public interest and that I have something, if, if, as long as I have something of value to share about it with them, um, I'll, you know, I'll keep doing that. My husband wishes that I had just, uh, I used to be an art teacher and a reporter and my husband um, liked my former income much better than he does my <laughs> present one. It's, this is not a field you go into for the money unless you're quite foolish. Um, because even even with the number of books I've written, it's it's a niche audience, and you know it's uh, anybody who's read Lauren Coleman's column and blogs on you know his financial woes will will also understand this is something that you do because you're interested in the material, um, and and not really for personal enrichment. Absolutely, yeah, I'm in the same boat, so I can totally identify with that. Yeah, and I've advised people to <laughs> stay in school before you go and try and become a researcher yeah. of the esoteric because don't quit your day job <laughs> ex exactly exactly oh i want to ask you what is the uh the poison widow is this a, a true story because it's yeah. referenced a few times in in your book tell me a little bit about that because i found it kind of interesting i'm a big true crime fan i have a feeling that's what this is it is and I think it's fascinating. Um, I think it would make a much better movie than The Beast of Bray Road, which, by the way, if you see that movie, I had nothing to do with it. I always make that really clear. But it's the true story of a woman who grew up in a farm uh, north of Whitewater, Wisconsin, and in the 1920s, uh, she was married with four children, very respectable, um, considered attractive, church-going lady, and she and her husband took in college boarders, and she had a romance with one of these um, boarders, and between the two of them, they killed her husband with strychnine. Oh, boy. Would have gotten away with it had she not the next year decided to, to try and kill her four children, too, because the new boyfriend didn't want to support them all. And it just gets absolutely crazy. And that that's how she got caught, and he got caught. And there were two really nationally followed trials that have been were or had been pretty much forgotten until I dug it up. I spent six years researching and had like 500 pages of court documents and found some really old people who still were around at the time and knew her and that kind of thing. And uh, it, she was known in the headlines as the Poison Widow of Whitewater. And there was a huge trial. She was convicted. She conned her way out and had another had a second family in Illinois who didn't know anything about what she did in Wisconsin until I contacted them. She was dead by then, but... Um, I kind of called them and said, I, "I know what your granny did last century." You know. Oh wow. Yeah, yeah, and they were—they would have believed me if I hadn't brought the newspaper clippings, and they could see that it was her. So it was—it was quite—it was considered sordid and shocking, you know, because the details of the affair came out in the trial, and they couldn't even get a woman to sit in on the jury. It was considered that—that that much. And I just found it accidentally when I was working for the newspaper researching activities of the Ku Klux Klan in the 20s, and I kept seeing these headlines that said, sordid, shocking activities of poison widows. So of course, I was reading those <laughs> and going, wow, this is a whole big thing that um, nobody's talked about, you know, and the town was just so ashamed of it. It was sort of swept under the rug because here was this respectable family involved in this huge scandal at the time. So, so yeah, I think that it's... Um, a really compelling story. Yeah, I'm going to have to check that one out for sure because it sounds interesting. You know what? They made a Beast of Bray Road movie, and without your consent, I guess. I guess they don't have to, right? Or is it just sort of? Well, 
Yeah, you you can't copyright a title, and it's really kind of a um, grade B pulp horror flick. Yeah. Which you know, as I've mentioned, the creature I study has never hurt anybody, but in this movie, the movie's pretty much you know eight ways to watch a werewolf eat a human being alive. <laughs> to pretty much sum it up, you know. So, and actually, the publisher wanted to sue them but couldn't find enough similarity to my book <laughs> to make it stick. So <laughs> so that just tells you, you know, that it's it's really not related. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. I got to commend you too for your artwork. I didn't I didn't realize till I till I got to like your third or fourth uh drawing in there that that was by you and then I looked a little closer at the signature and I was like, "Wow, she's really good." Oh, thank you. Well, I my degree is in art and art education. Okay, yeah. Well, it must and, help in this sort of situation because I bet you have to do yeah. sort of composites of what these people are talking about. Yeah, it helps me to do um, forensic sketches of, of witness descriptions, you know, and, and uh, I, I work much more cheaply for myself than anybody I could hire. So <laughs> it's it's good that way too. Yeah, that always helps. Now, how, just to throw back to one more question here about the, the Wolfman, how far back do these – obviously it's in the Native American lore, but like mm -hmm. how far back are we talking about? As you do a great job, I should say, in the book of tracing the evolution of these reports. But for the folks Thank who you. haven't read the book yet, how far back do these things go? And it sounds like they burst, really, once uh, your stuff sort of started coming out. Well, are you talking about the contemporary sightings yeah. or um, in human history? Contemporary sightings. Oh, okay. Because in human history, I mean, back to the earliest cave drawings that we have, you see people that are um, wearing animal heads. But these... Um, sightings that, that I can really document go back at least to the 1920s if you don't include all of the settler lore about werewolves and that kind of thing. You can find old settler um, stories and really old newspaper accounts which are um, not too trustworthy at, uh, in certain decades um, going back into the 1800s, but they aren't really specific enough often to really say what they were. You know, they'll be described as a hairy wild man or something like yeah. that. Um, but the ones that I can I, I can actually report, you've got the one in Jefferson County where the um, the man found the creature digging in the uh, Indian mound behind uh, a, a home for um, developmentally disabled people in 1936. There was a night watchman. Mm -hmm. And the thing stood up and said something to him. Oh boy! In what? Well, it's not. It was sort of a growl-like word, so it's subject to interpretation. But he thought it said Gadara, which um, is the name of a biblical place where, um, in the Bible, Jesus drove the demons that went into the pigs. He drove the pigs over the cliff down into the sea. So there's some biblical basis for it. It's sort of interesting. But I have another one that goes back to the 1930s that happened in Alabama that I'm writing about for the new book where an upper torso of what looked like a man-wolf appeared suddenly in an, in an Alabama schoolyard and lay there for several days. It um, was witnessed by all the children, and people were coming from miles around. It was kind of like uh, an old Rod Serling script or something. You know? yeah. It's what it reminds me of. And that goes back to the 30s. So I'd have to say I, I kind of put the line at contemporary accounts as, as around the 1930s or so, which coincidentally is when the first um, Hollywood monster movies really started coming out, you know, the, the Wolfman and that sort of thing. 
So it, in some ways it makes me wonder if public consciousness of these creatures started helping them to materialize from somewhere. And that's a really woo-woo concept, I know, but um, it does make you wonder. Or if people's minds were prepared to uh, recognize and accept such things by the movies when before they didn't have any context to put them in. And so we just call them a wild man or, or something else. You can look at it either way. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I wouldn't short sell the idea of, you know, that this concept got planted into the public consciousness. And then if we're looking at it, you know, I had Chris or Christopher O'Brien on talking about the trickster and sort of mm-hmm. coined the phrase tulpification, where it's sort of even if it's an mm. inadvertent uh, creation of something from the mind. Do you know what right. I mean? Yeah, that people sort of, the collective subconscious manifested it, is I think how some people would put it. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, it it does sort of tally with this first age of, golden age of monster movies. Yeah, and then, and then you know, following it up to when your stuff started coming out, it seemed like there was a big burst in, in uh, sightings and stuff. Uh, you know, maybe so many people had read the stories, you know, they're thinking about it, it's on their mind, you know, and they sort of just generate it somehow from, from their own consciousness. I mean, we can't rule that sort of thing out either. No, it's true. Um, although a lot of people who write will tell me that, you know, I'm not one to really look at movies. I, I, I didn't know anything about The Beast of Bray Road until somebody told me, until I told my cousin and they said, write to Linda Godfrey, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's true. You do say that in the book, yeah. So you do have that. So when it's probably about equal, you know, between people who have and haven't paid much attention, it's hard to say, you know, yeah. whether that's really a causative factor or not. Yeah, like you say in the book, and like you said earlier here, you know, it's just so hard to fit one sort of thing into all these different cases, do you know what I mean? It's like, exactly. in some it could be interdimensional, but then in some cases the interdimensional part doesn't seem to make sense with these with case number, you know, XYZ or whatever, and then just right. go on and on down the line. Although I do have to say that, um, in all fairness, the ones that do display some sort of um, supernatural or paranormal, whatever you want to call it, features, whether it's slightly disappearing or morphing or um, doing something it shouldn't be able to do, really are the, the, the minority of the sightings. The great majority don't do anything that a natural animal couldn't do. Yeah, so we can't be too quick to rule out just that it's a natural animal, you know, and there could be something else that mimics it, some interdimensional thing that mimics it. Do you know what I mean? I mean, we're in way over our heads here. <laughs> yeah, it gets it gets really kind of mind-boggling. But, you know, I do keep in mind that um, supernatural mimics really use they, – they, they can't invent new forms. They can only mimic things that are already here. Um, for instance, Cree bear walkers mimic the bear that's already here. So – Who's to say that there isn't somebody that's mimicking a creature that's already here? Yeah. Right? It could be a very mixed bag of, of uh, things causing these sightings, and there's just simply no way to know. I highly doubt that it's one simple answer for all the sightings. Exactly, much like the UFO mystery. Right. Now, before I let you go, people like stories. Do you have a favorite bipedal canine story that really, uh, you know, stands the hair up on the back of your neck or, or you think encapsulates this whole mystery? Well, one one that really scares me that I'm, I just wrote up for, I'm working on a book called Michigan Dogman, um, Werewolves and Other Unknown Upright Canines for Unexplained Research Publishing that should be out by this summer. 
And this one that just really stopped me cold was from a very credible witness. Um, I think it happened in Mississippi. It's one of those states around there. I don't have it right in front of me at the moment. But he was out um, jigger jigger pulling for, for bass, which is a certain uh, form of fishing where you have this long rod and, and you jiggle it in a certain way. I, I can't explain it well enough as, as he did. But he was out in this very shallow area on a kind of a flat bottom boat, um, not too far from the shore with his dog. And he hears noises from the shore and looks, and here is the classic man wolf standing up and wading out into the water toward him on its hind legs. Oh, boy. And his dog is barking. It's not bothered by the dog, just kind of, you know, menaces the dog. At one point, the dog jumps out into the water, and to save the dog, he had a pistol in his pocket, and he fired, I think, nine rounds, he said, and none of them seemed to hit it. Hmm. But it did turn around. When when he started shooting, it did turn around and ran off on hind legs back into the woods. You know, and he really feels if he hadn't had the gun, he would have been toast. Yeah. You know, and that one really did seem aggressive. Um, you know, boldly walking out to somebody in a boat, it, I suppose it looked like he was easy pickings. It was a very isolated boat landing, and there was no one around, you know, so um, no one to witness it. But... That's a story that really made me stop and think about a lot of a lot of aspects of it. Yeah, I actually had that in my notes. I was going to ask you, have you ever looked at maybe mysterious deaths? Because I know you say, like, you know, to your knowledge, the man wolves never hurt anyone. But chances are, if it's going to hurt someone, it's going it's to death. permanently, yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's usually my footnote. They've never hurt anyone that we know of, you know, that lived to tell the tale. Exactly. It's possible, but... I haven't ever really been able to correlate any missing persons reports with areas of man-wolf sightings. It's just something that's that I don't um, eliminate the possibility of it, but I don't have any proof for it. Yeah, yeah, it would be a tough one to uh, to sort of pin down. Now, what about one last thing here? What about pet and animal reactions to this creature? Are they? I've heard stories about you know strange reactions from dogs and stuff to Bigfoot and things like that. Um, what kind of yeah, encounters pretty, have you heard of? Yeah, they're pretty similar. They, they seem, Most people tell me um, that even big dogs will whimper and cower. Some will run after it and then come back with their tails between their legs. And the ones who um, don't will whimper and cower in the house. Um, they don't generally seem to want anything to do with it. I think the dog in the boat didn't have any place to go, and it was kind of like, well, either I defend me and my master or we die, yeah. you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. But um, it does seem to really intimidate even very large dogs. And I have a number of witnesses in um, the book I'm writing right now who saw it um, either with their cat in its mouth or ripping apart their dog. Um, it seems to uh, – I've had reports of cats going, especially going missing – from neighborhoods where these things are sighted. Oh, boy. So, yeah, it's kind of like keep your pets in the house, people, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody's reporting man-wolf activity around you. And, again, it sort of points to that opportunistic um, scavenging side that you see. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. It's got to get food somewhere, so. Right. Very interesting, very interesting. Anything else we should touch on before we wrap it up? Wow. We've covered well, a lot, so I'm wondering yeah, if there's anything yeah, we've, missed. we've covered a really uh, good, broad range. Um, other than the fact that I 
don't claim to know what it is, finally, and I won't until some kind of conclusive proof comes in. I think it's really audacious of people to assume that they know everything about the universe and the world and that they know everything about an unknown creature enough to say without any authority that, yes, it's this or it's that. Um, I, I just don't make that claim. And uh, I do encourage people to, if they have an authentic sighting of um, something that sounds like a bipedal canine or, or anything close to it, if it's got interesting aspects, um, they can contact me through my website. Any place that you click on either beastofbrayroad.com or weirdmichigan.com will come straight to me. I have no assistants or minions. So <laughs> just uh, be as thorough as you can and include all the details possible, especially um, date and place. I, I get reports saying me and Joe saw a werewolf on the fence last, um, you know, last night, and there's nothing about what it looked like or what the weather was or where it was or when it was or what your condition was at the time. And really all of those things are very important. And uh, no full moon connection, right, to this whole thing? Not that I've been able to document. Sometimes people will write that there was a full moon, but most of the time they don't remember the exact date, so you can't really go back and look. Yeah, I do if, when I can, but... Um, if anything, the full moon probably just helps to to have the sighting. Exactly. The light. Exactly. It makes it, um, it makes them able to see it. So that's probably, probably has more to do with it than anything else. Otherwise, I just, I really believe the full moon thing is a Hollywood, um, addition to the lore. Yeah, it seems that way. All right. So you've been teasing us here with this third book for a while. So, uh, tell us a little bit more about it when it's coming out. Uh, you said the title, uh, Dogman of Michigan, and then there was other parts to it, but I don't remember them now. So <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, me. it's the Michigan Dogman. Werewolf and other unknown upright canines, or something something very close to that. Okay. We're still kind of finagling with it. Um, the publisher is Unexplained Research Publishing. Uh, my friends uh, Chad Lewis and Terry Fisk, who have the wildly popular Haunted Road Guide series to a bunch of different states, mm -hmm. and you can see you can just go to unexplainedresearch.com and and see who they are. And that should be out by July or so. Um, they do a very nice, they put a very nice book together, and I'm really excited about working with them. Um, I'm also working on a book of Wisconsin monsters for Stackpole. I have a book on haunted Wisconsin that's coming out from Stackpole in July. And I'm also working on a couple of novels. I've decided I really enjoy writing the fiction end of these things, too. So we'll see oh, where nice. that goes. Well, I had one more. Uh, in total, how many of these bipedal canine reports do you think you've gotten over the years? I lost count as somewhere over 100, and it's probably closer to 200 by now, but um, I sort them out into regions and states and types of sightings. Some are much better than others. Some are, like I mentioned, you know, me and Joe saw the thing by the fence last night, yeah. and then others are really usable, detailed, credible sightings, so... Um, you know, it, it's hard to put an exact number on it, but, um, you know, it's at least approaching the hundreds. It's over 100 and, and probably at least 200. Okay, yes. Yeah, so we're not talking like a dozen people here. No, no, so no. Quite a, quite a few. They keep coming in, and I average one a week still. Wow. 
any speaking engagements you want to plug or upcoming TV appearances? We got the Monster Quest one already in the books, but anything else uh, that's in the works that you might want to mention? People can follow me by clicking on the schedule pages on my uh, websites, beastofbrayroad.com and weirdmichigan.com. But I am going to be at Paracon in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, which is going to be held at the uh, Kiwad, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Casino, up there by Sault Ste. Marie, the last weekend in August. Awesome. And they've, they've got a pretty good lineup. So, and I, I'll be there with my books. I'm also going to be at a really fun festival called Moose Fest USA in Montello, Wisconsin, the first weekend in May. And it's actually sponsored by Steve Kruger, who was one of the witnesses featured on um, this week's Monster Quest, the guy who had the deer carcass stolen from his truck. Yep. He's also a professional cartoonist and um, kind of put together this really fun festival that's not related to monsters at all, but I'm going to be there um, selling books and signing books. Sounds great. All right. And folks can check out beastofbrayroad.com for more information on your appearances and where can they get the books, through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all those great sites? Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. They're, they're available in Barnes & Noble stores and local bookstores can order them and then they're on the online bookstores. Awesome. The Beast of Bray Road and Hunting the American Werewolf, as well as uh, you're the co-author of Weird Wisconsin and Weird Michigan and the author of The Poison Widow, which is a true crime story that sounds really fascinating. I'm going to have to pick that up and have you back on the show just to talk about that, I think. Cause, uh, Thank you. I'd love to. Oh, there's a lot. Yeah, it, it's been very popular with um, women's book clubs because there's so much to chew on. Oh, yeah, it definitely sounds like that. Well, it's been really great talking to you, Linda. It's been just really fascinating. i got to commend you for your bravery in exploring this topic, not necessarily that because it's a frightening topic, because it is kind of spooky and creepy, but just because it's so on the peripheral of cryptozoology and esoterica. And like I said at the start of this interview, it comes with a lot of the Hollywood baggage, but there's something there, and there's something there worth investigating. And I'm so happy that someone's doing that investigation. And I, like I said, i got to commend you for that, because if not for you, you know, we wouldn't even know about this enigma that is truly fascinating, truly unique, and could open up a whole new realm of, of study for a lot of people. So you're doing some awesome work. The book was amazing. I'm going to definitely pick up the original book, Beast of Bray Road, so I can sort of uh, find out more about this case and obviously your other books as well. And, and very enjoyable. You can tell you come from a journalistic background because the way you convey these stories that people told you is awesome, and I've read a lot of different sighting reports of UFOs and Bigfoots and stuff like that, and sometimes they just, just sort of put you to sleep, but with, with your style, it was, you know, really compelling stuff, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. So, Thank you very much. Oh, no problem. I really, uh, you know, I can't put you over enough. It's been great to have you on the show, and I'm looking forward to talking to you again in the future. I'll be glad to any time. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Big, big, super huge thanks, of course, to Linda Godfrey for coming on the show. You can find out more from her at the website, www.beastofbrayroad.com. All one word, beastofbray, B-R-A-Y, road.com. Check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. We're going to showcase two emails here this week. Thankfully, no mean ones like last week. The first one comes from an international listener. He is Rick in Cornwall, UK, and here's what he has to say. I love your shows generally and find the work absorbing and educational. 
In any case, grievance this is. Uh-oh. Or rather, just a point. Listening to the Ken Thomas show, I noticed several instances of the F-word. I'm no puss or wimp, but I just don't think it becomes you or your show, which I like to think of as family programming that I would recommend. X-rated words, I feel, demean your stature, and a mighty high stature it is in my book. I say, if Jerry Seinfeld can perform live on stage without one naughty word, and still be funny as heck, I respect that far more than some cussin' Clive. I offer this as just one talk radio lover's opinion. Yours truly, and with enormous respect for the huge job you do, Rick in Cornwall, UK. P.S. I write this note mainly because I don't recall ever hearing the F word from you before, which is why I was surprised. Maybe I haven't been listening carefully. Wow. First of all, thank you for the props, Rick. I appreciate it. No worries about being critical. I appreciate the feedback from people who have constructive criticism and aren't jerks about it. I almost used one of those X-rated words, but I caught myself. You're not the first person to write in about my at times foul language. I'll admit I do slip a few blue words in there during the show. I'm surprised you just noticed it on the Ken Thomas interview because we did feature an email here during season four from the now infamous Mag, who had pretty much the same thing to say as you did here about my cuss words. I will do my best to be more cognizant of the swear words during the program. You raise a very thoughtful point, Rick, in that I do want BOA Audio to be family programming, and I don't want folks to be afraid to play the program in front of their kids or in the car while they're driving around. They got their kids in there. I don't want them to cringe listening to the program because I'm dropping F-bombs left and right. So you're totally correct about that, Rick. I may slip a blue word in there every now and again, most likely accidentally. Usually it happens when I'm feeling particularly comfortable with the guest. You know, we've really got some great chemistry going there, and you just completely forget that you're taping a radio show. But at the same time, I am once again going to be more cognizant of the curse words and try and limit them as best I can. Although I will not completely do away with them because... As I discovered after reading Mag's email last year, we got emails from people who enjoyed the swear words. So you can't, you can't please everybody, but we'll try and find a middle ground here. So once again, Rick, thank you for your kind words and your props on BOA Audio. The next email comes from Jerry in Hubbard, Ohio. I read a portion of this on the BOA Audio Lost Cast last week and accidentally attributed the email to Dixie, which was what the email address said. So I'm going to correct the mistake here by reading Jerry's email at the end of BOA Audio. Here's what Jerry has to say. It is a pleasure and a privilege writing you. I enjoyed the latest Lost Cast episode. In response to your inquiry about the 3D experiment, I give you and Jeremy serious kudos for original thinking. For me, however, it was one which seemed great in concept but unpredictable in outcome. Through earbuds, the constant swirl from left to right, along with the periodic inevitable overtalk where one of you would come through the other's channel, truly made my head spin, sending me for the porcelain throne in preparedness for potential barfage. As such, I had to switch to the 2D version. 
Still, the content continues to maintain the five-star qualities I've come to know and enjoy from BOA and the Vaney Ritzman team. Also, your guest host role on the Paratobia episode with Wes Owsley was outstanding. You shouldn't put yourself down. How anyone could find you annoying is beyond my comprehension, and very shallow on their part as far as I'm concerned. Please know that you are sincerely appreciated. To me, it is obvious a lot of hard work goes into every podcast. I also acknowledge the work of your staff as well. If one looks, and no need necessarily look that hard, it is easy to see that this is not just work for you, it's a passion. The same is directed to Jeremy and Jeff as well. Thank you again, Tim. It's a sincere pleasure. My best to you all. Regards, Jerry in Hubbard, Ohio. There you go. What a nice email from Jerry. I really appreciate it. First of all, a thousand apologies, my friend Jerry, for accidentally attributing your email to Dixie on the Lost Cast when I read an excerpt of it. And for those folks who have no idea what Jerry's talking about with regards to the 3D episode, we did a special 3D episode of the Lost Cast where Jeremy's voice was in the left ear, my voice was in the right ear, and When I originally came up with the concept, I thought it was going to be amazing and revolutionary, but when I actually put it all together and put it out there, I realized that it was a terrible idea. took way too long to do, was far too technically complicated, and just really sounded like crap. So, I can laugh about it now. I want to take the risk with the 3D episode, and we've been laughing about it ever since on the Lost Cast. And Jerry was responding to my call for feedback because we hadn't heard anyone who could endure the 3D episode. So, with regards to my guest host stint on Paratopia, I had a blast doing that, co-hosting the show with Jeremy. That's what sort of gave me the idea to launch the Lost Cast just a few weeks later after I guest hosted on Paratopia. I was just being a little self-deprecating, Jerry. You don't have to worry about that. I knew I was sort of in somebody else's turf. I was uh, sitting in for Jeff, and I wanted to make sure that the Paratopia listeners knew that I didn't take myself too seriously, and I was there to have fun and was going along for the ride. And finally, Jerry, I'm just really humbled by your kind words. I really appreciate the props on the program, and I'm sure the BOA staff appreciates it as well as do, I'm sure, Jeremy and Jeff. I've become good friends with the Paratopia guys over the last few months, I know they're in a state of flux right now over on the program, getting ready to develop a whole new sort of concept for Paratopia. I want to wish them the best of luck with that. I'm really looking forward to what Jeff and Jeremy have up their sleeve with the Paratopia revolution. So there you have it. Those are this week's emails. Jerry in Hubbard, Ohio, and Rick in Cornwall, UK. Big thanks to both those guys for writing in. You guys are awesome. And as always, we want to hear... From all you great folks out there in BOA Nation, how do you get a hold of me? How do you become a part of BOA Audio Listener Feedback? That's really quite simple. There's three main methods to do it. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or go to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com and click the contact button. And the final method is to join up at the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T H E U S O F E.com. And we've got discussions going on about all the different BOA audio episodes, as well as pop culture, sports, and esoterica. It is BOA's paranormal playground, the US of E.com. 
check it out. Those are the three main methods. Plus, you can always hit me up via Facebook, MySpace, and or Twitter. I'm on all those great sites, and I will definitely be your friend or follow you or all the other stuff they have going on there. Just don't ask me to uh, join your mafia or uh, adopt a chicken for your farm or any of those other weird things they have on Facebook. They drive me crazy. But anyway, those are the various methods to get a hold of me. Send me your correspondence, your questions, your comments, your critiques, your guest suggestions. I want to hear all your thoughts on the program. And if your stuff is pithy or particularly intriguing, we will definitely use it here at the end of the program on BOA Audio Listener Feedback. You know what comes next. It is the thanks portion of the show. Allow me to tip my cap to the amazing, infamous, and esteemed BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, A.M., Murphy, Marla, Pena, our contributing cartoonist, Andy Carolan, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. The BOA staff continues to contribute some truly thought-provoking stuff at the website. You definitely want to check out their columns. And even though we've been teasing it, it seems like for all of Season 5 so far, I can promise you we are well on our way to unleashing BOA 2.0. Finally, we had to table it for a little while here as 2010 began because things were just crazy for me. They were crazy for our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. But things have calmed down for both of us. We've put our minds back together, and we are very, very close to unleashing BOA 2.0. I'm not going to put a deadline on it, because as I've noticed here over the last few years, whenever I put a deadline on something, it never seems to happen in time for the deadline. So I'm just going to say keep an eye on Banal of America, because BOA 2.0 is on its way. And while you're at in all of America, check out the columns from the BOA staff. We say it here week in and week out, but it bears repeating once again, my friends. If you're only listening to BOA audio and you're not reading the columns at Ben All of America, then you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Long-time listeners know that we follow a set pattern here at the end of the program, so I'm guessing that you can guess what I'm going to be talking about next, and that is donations. The Manal of America franchise needs your help, we need your support, we need your financial contributions to help keep the whole operation financially viable. How do you do that? That's simple. You just go to Manal of America or the BOA Audio Archive page and click the PayPal button. They'll walk you through the process. It's quite simple. I highly recommend PayPal. I know a lot of folks want to send in snail mail donations and we're working on the P.O. Box system hoping to have it all straightened out soon but for those folks who can make donations right now via PayPal they would be greatly appreciated and as we say all the time here folks no donation is too small and all donations go towards Benal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the website and the audio series up and running freely available and commercial free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. I already plugged next week's edition of the program, but let me give you a detailed look at what we're going to be talking about. Our guest is superstar ufologist Richard Dolan, and he's coming back to the program for an in-depth discussion on his long-awaited study of UFO history from 1971 to 1991 titled UFOs and the National Security State, 
Volume 2, a 600-page masterpiece from Richard Dolan. I read it the weekend before we sat down to do the interview, so it was truly fresh in my mind, and we cover a plethora of stuff. Let me just detail some of the avenues we're going to be exploring here next week on the program with Richard Dolan. We'll talk about how UFO studies evolved from 1971 to 1991, how crash retrieval and abduction research proved to be a revolution for the field. We'll hear about the APRO versus NICAP versus MUFON feud that was an undercurrent to the entire era, how plausible the government-made UFO concept holds up when looking at the known research of the time frame, the idea of a breakaway civilization formed by those in the know about UFOs, controversial figures like Bill Cooper, Bob Lazar, and John Lear, and how Richard wrestled with how to portray their contributions to ufology in the book. We'll reflect on the perceived taint of the Richard Doty era of UFO studies. We'll hear about the mind-blowing testimony of the all-too-unknown Dr. Eric Walker, We'll explore the Hudson Valley UFO flap and why it was the perfect storm for ufology and tons and tons more. That's just a scratch at the surface. This is a jam-packed conversation, my friends. It is truly a feast of information and insight that any serious student of the UFO phenomenon will not want to miss. Returning to BOA Audio for his first full-length interview since 2006, the hugely popular Richard Dolan is back on the program for discussion on UFOs and the National Security State Volume 2 next week on BOA Audio. Plus, don't forget the immortal Bruce Rux joins us on the Lost Cast next week as well. And on that note, we close the book here on another edition of BOA Audio. Once again, big thanks to Linda Godfrey for coming on the show and big thanks to Rick and jerry for writing in on boa audio listener feedback and of course most of all super huge thanks to all of you great folks out there the boa audio listeners you guys are the best i thank you every week because you make this show possible thank you so much for your support of the program and for making boa audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist until next time this is tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off